The Braille Monitor, Volume 66, Number 2, February 2023, Gary Wonder, Editor. Distributed by email, in ink print, in Braille, and on USB flash drive by the National Federation of the Blind, Mark Riccobono, President. Telephone, 410-659-9314. Email address, nfb at nfb.org. Website address, http colon slash slash www.nfb.org nfbnet.org http colon slash slash www.nfbnet.org nfb newsline information 866-504-7300 like us on facebook facebook.com slash national federation of the blind follow us on twitter at nfb underscore voice Watch and share our videos, youtube.com slash nationsblind. Letters to the President, address changes, subscription requests, and orders for NFB literature should be sent to the National Office. Articles for the Monitor and letters to the Editor may also be sent to the National Office or may be emailed to gwunder, G-W-U-N-D-E-R, at nfb.org. Monitor subscriptions cost the Federation about $40 per year. Members are invited and non-members are requested to cover the subscription cost. Donations should be made payable to National Federation of the Blind and sent to National Federation of the Blind, 200 East Well Street at Jernigan Place, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230-4998. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. The National Federation of the Blind is not an organization speaking for the blind. It is the blind speaking for ourselves. Each issue is recorded on a thumb drive, also called a memory stick or USB flash drive. You can read this audio edition using a computer or a National Library Service digital player. The NLS machine has two slots. The familiar book cartridge slot just above the retractable carrying handle and a second slot located on the right side near the headphone jack. This smaller slot is used to play thumb drives. Remove the protective rubber pad covering this slot and insert the thumb drive. It will insert only in one position. If you encounter resistance, flip the drive over and try again. Note, if the cartridge slot is not empty when you insert the thumb drive, the digital player will ignore the thumb drive. Once the thumb drive is inserted, the player buttons will function as usual for reading digital materials. If you remove the thumb drive to use the player for cartridges, when you insert it again, reading should resume at the point you stopped. You can transfer the recording of each issue from the thumb drive to your computer or preserve it on the thumb drive. However, because thumb drives can be used hundreds of times, we would appreciate their return in order to stretch our funding. Please use the return envelope enclosed with the drive when you return the device. Convention Bulletin, 2023 A photo appears on the page, the caption, Hilton America's Houston Convention Center Hotel. There are plenty of reasons one might travel to Houston, Texas, the fourth most populous city in the United States. One might visit for the nearly three-week-long Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. The city's vibrant art scene boasts the largest concentration of theater seats outside of New York City. And no Houston resident would let a visitor forget that the city is home to the 2022 World Series champion Houston Astros. There is little question that Houston has a great deal going for it. The city's real draw, however, 
is that it will play host to the National Federation of the Blind's 2023 National Convention. It has now been more than 50 years since the largest gathering of the organized blind last convened in Houston, Texas, and our return in 2023 will be an event not to be missed. The Hilton America's Houston Hotel, 1600 Lamar Street, Houston, Texas, 77010, will serve as our convention headquarters hotel. Situated in the heart of downtown Houston, across the street from the beautiful 12-acre Discovery Green Park, the Hilton Americas is an ideal location for our annual event. Ballrooms, breakout space, and sleeping rooms are all stacked in the same tower housed on a single city block, simplifying navigation and minimizing travel distances. In-room internet is complimentary to all attendees, as is access to the health club and swimming pool on the 22nd floor. There are several dining options on the hotel's lobby level, including a Starbucks for those of you requiring a caffeine fix, and many more choices within easy walking distance from the Hilton's front door. The nightly rate at the Hilton America's Houston is $119 for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. In addition, the sales tax rate is 8.25%, and the hotel occupancy tax rate is 17%. To book your room for the 2023 convention, call 1-800-236-2905 after January 1, and ask for the NFB Convention Block. For each room, the hotel will take a deposit of the first night's room rate and taxes and will require a credit card or a personal check. If you use a credit card, the deposit will be charged against your card immediately. If a reservation is canceled before Monday, June 1, 2023, half of the deposit will be returned. Otherwise, refunds will not be made. We have also secured overflow space at the wonderful Marriott Marquis Houston, the Marriott is only a three-block walk directly across Discovery Green, or attendees can walk entirely indoors through the George R. Brown Convention Center, connecting both hotels on the second level. You will find many of the same amenities at the Marriott, as well as a Texas-shaped Lazy River Pool. The room rate at the Marriott Marquis is also $119 per night for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. To book a room, call 1-877-622-3056 after January 1. Again, ask for the NFB Convention Block. Similarly, the same deposit and cancellation policies apply. The 2023 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind will be a truly exciting and memorable event with an unparalleled program and rededication to the goals and work of our movement. A wide range of seminars for parents of blind children, technology enthusiasts, job seekers, and other groups will kick the week off on Saturday, July 1. Convention registration and registration packet pickup will also open on Saturday. Breakout sessions continue on Sunday, along with committee meetings. Monday, July 3, will kick off with the annual meeting, open to all, of the Board of Directors of the National Federation of the Blind. National Division meetings will follow the board meeting that afternoon and evening. General convention sessions will begin on Tuesday, July 4, and continue through the afternoon of Thursday, July 6. Convention ends on a high note with the banquet Thursday evening so be sure to pack your fancy clothes. The fall of the gavel at the close of banquet will signal convention's adjournment. Remember that, as usual, we need door prizes from state affiliates, local chapters, and individuals. Once again, prizes should be small in size but large in value. Cash, of course, is always appropriate and welcome. As a rule, we ask that prizes of all kinds have a value of at least $25 and not include alcohol. Drawings will occur steadily throughout the convention sessions, and you can anticipate a Texas-sized grand prize to be drawn at the banquet. You may bring door prizes with you to convention or send them in advance to the National Federation of the Blind of Texas at 1600 East Highway 6, Suite 215, 
Alvin, Texas, 77511. The best collection of exhibits featuring new technology, meetings of our special interest groups, committees, and divisions, the most stimulating and provocative program items of any meeting of the blind in the world, the chance to renew friendships in our Federation family, and the unparalleled opportunity to be where the real action is and where decisions are being made. All of these mean you will not want to miss being part of the 2023 National Convention. To assure yourself a room in the headquarters hotel at convention rates, make your reservations early. We plan to see you in Houston in July. Volume 66, Number 2, February 2023, Contents Illustration More than an emotionally touching case for Braille. The Federation loses a longtime leader and a strong advocate for becoming all one can be by Gary Wonder. President's Message by Mark Riccobono. Engineering a New Response. Transforming at Home Testing through Partnership with the Blind by Jill Heemskirk. What You Should Know to Win Yourself a Scholarship by Catherine Mendez. Who Are the Blind Who Lead the Blind? Those Elected in 2022. Saying Thank You and Encouraging Further Accessibility by John Miller. Disability Intersections, Blindness and Autism by Matt Langland. Allyship and Inclusivity by Rashika Kartik. Touring and Facilities by Ramona Walhoff. Kenneth Jernigan Convention Scholarship by Tracy Sofranco. The Journey of Braille, From the Hands of the Creator to Earth Orbit, by Mark Maurer. Reading to Succeed, How the Power of Braille Literacy Opened New Avenues for Interpreting My World, by John Calconley. You Can Make a Difference. More Than an Emotionally Touching Case for Braille? A photo appears on the page, the caption, A stack of documents in Braille represent 10 weeks of work by 26 educators enrolled in one of our Braille classes. Braille is a code that enables us to read with our fingertips using a system of six raised dots. It was created in 1824 by a French boy named Louis Braille, who was born on January 4, 1809. Today, Braille is used all over the world in many languages. Each year, we work to get Braille into the hands of more blind people. January 4 marks World Braille Day in celebration of its creator, Louis Braille. Every day, thousands of blind people use Braille for everything from shopping lists to labels for canned goods, from reading novels to solving math and scientific equations, from learning a piece of music to composing one. In January 2022, Google launched their new domain opportunity to promote special days and events for promoting a cause. We celebrated World Braille Day with the new URL, www.braille.day. So what does proficient Braille look like? Here is a stack of Braille that is 44 inches tall from a recent Braille 1 class of 26 educators learning Braille. 2,715.5 pages of Braille were completed by the participants in just 10 weeks. Building speed. Four participants went from knowing no Braille to reading Braille. That's zero words per minute, and at the end of 10 weeks, a minimum of 30 words per minute. Beginning Braille readers, ranged from 30 to 44 words per minute. Highest speed, 149 words per minute. That was for one who was already a Braille reader. Reading levels. In 10 weeks, beginners went from reading simple words to reading a fourth grade chapter book. Lifelong learners. Of the four Braille readers that were lifelong Braille readers, they all four increased their reading speed between 17 words per minute and 34 words per minute. Braille Rocks, 
Thank you to Casey Robertson, EDS, NCUEB, bracket, National Certification in Unified English Braille, close bracket, for sharing this great work with all of us. The Federation Loses a Longtime Leader and a Strong Advocate for Becoming All One Can Be by Gary Wonder. A photo appears on the page in the caption, Alan Harris, October 23, 1945, August 10, 2022. One of the benefits of being a part of the National Federation of the Blind is getting to know some really special people. The man I write to honor is in the top tier. He was a friend who enjoyed telling and hearing jokes, teasing people he loved, and trying to uphold a sense of optimism in everything he did. He had a family, a job, and lots of loyal friends. This was exactly what I wanted in my life, and I never found a role model who was easier to get to know. Although I knew him long before, Alan was a mentor to me when I joined the National Board of Directors, was a good sounding board as I tried to navigate being state president, and was an inspiration to me as I studied his history, his humanity, the way he changed people's lives, and the perspectives he held on issues that went far beyond blindness. Whether we talked about the state of the country, the future for blind people, the rapidly changing technology that might leave us behind, or the challenges involved in recruiting and keeping new people, my friend was always an optimist. One of his favorite sayings was, We'll figure it out. Alan, a longtime high school wrestling coach, helped me root out and eliminate my bias against coaches who became social studies teachers. In my snobby opinion, they really wanted to be coaches and weren't very gifted academically. I don't have any examples I can use to justify this stereotype, but too often my ego has been nurtured at the expense of others and, of course, I was studying the hard sciences. But Alan Harris had a distinguished academic career, one that I could not easily dismiss. Graduating magna cum laude, talking history, sharing political views, and revealing himself as a man of passion and compassion, Alan Harris replaced my unhealthy bias with life-sustaining optimism and taught me a different way to think and a caution about coming to premature and damaging conclusions. One of the things that fascinated me about the story of Alan Harris was his desire to get a job. He said that he sent out more than 200 resumes and attended almost 100 interviews before he got an offer. Part of his life's work was to make it easier for other blind people who would follow, but he also knew that there was a certain toughness required to be blind and successful, and he believed that part of his job was being real about that in teaching us how to be tough while not losing our kindness, compassion, and gentleness. All of those interviews resulted in a career that found him teaching for decades in the public schools and then moving into the field of blindness professionally. He worked as the assistant director of the Agency for the Blind in New York and then as the director of the Iowa Department for the Blind. In both jobs, he was determined to win for blind people, and he was fond of saying that if we don't take a risk and gamble on the difficult ones, be they the difficult jobs or the difficult people to place, we really aren't doing our clients a service. He was also dedicated to increasing the morale on staff, doing his best to communicate that the field of rehabilitating the blind was honorable and, when done right, infinitely rewarding to the client and the professional alike. This sometimes put him at odds with other agencies, for the increases he won to keep professionals in the field sometimes placed them above others who believed they were doing similar work for far less pay. Allen served as the president of the National Federation of the Blind of Michigan from 1976 to 1999, meaning he held down a full-time job while simultaneously being an officer. His presidency saw the creation of the Michigan Commission for the Blind in 1978, the creation of a day camp, 
and the start of Saturday school in the 80s. Throughout much of his presidency, Allen served on the National Board of Directors. After his election in 1981, he was elected as the Corporate Secretary in 1985 and then as Treasurer in 1988. He served in that capacity until 2002. He may be best known for his work in helping to establish and then administering the Kenneth Jernigan Fund that has been responsible for getting so many first-timers to our national conventions. As impressive as his organizational contributions were, the transformation he made in the lives of others is the thing for which he will be most fondly remembered. Steve Hanshu said, The thing I remember most fondly about Alan and the change he made in my life was that he got me to understand that the words blindness and dignity could appear in the same sentence. Alan made me and others feel that we could do better without making us feel that we were in any way lacking. If we wanted to make Alan happy, and certainly we did, the way was through our own self-improvement. Because he liked us, any success was ours and his, and, as was so characteristic of Alan, he was always looking for the win-win. Steve relates a memorable moment when, at a banquet, a blind colleague yelled out, They have given me an unbuttered roll, and I need someone to butter it. So loud and unexpected was this demand that the tables around were temporarily speechless. Alan quietly got up, went to the gentleman, and said, I won't butter your roll for you, but I'll show you how to do it. Taking the man's hands, he proceeded to do this without drawing more attention to the incident. What was impressive was Alan's unquestioning faith that the man could be taught and that Alan was the man to do the teaching. Steve Hanshu's own transformation didn't happen just by observing Alan's work in the lives of others. There was a dinner invitation to which Steve was invited with Alan Harris and John Halverson. While walking to the restaurant, Steve fell into a hole. He wasn't using a cane, a dog, or any kind of alternative technique because, as he had affirmatively stated on a number of occasions, he wasn't blind. When Alan helped fish Steve out of the hole, he gave Steve his cane, a bit of elementary instruction, and then said, Now, you use my cane, I'll follow you, and we're going to get to the restaurant. Steve's reaction was one of disbelief. We're going to a restaurant? My pants have mud on them, and you want me to use your cane while you follow me? Have you ever heard the biblical warning about when the blind lead the blind? Alan suggested that the value of the parable notwithstanding, when he followed Steve, he was doing so believing Steve had learned enough to get them where they wanted to go. As for the clothes, there was no time to change them, so he was encouraged to throw vanity to the wind. Patty Chang said, Alan was an amazing mentor in my youth and a friend as I became active. He was always someone to emulate from his kindness to his care for learning. Wherever he went, he affected those around him. Bridget Burke remembers, As an NFB staff member, I was fortunate to work with Alan Harris on the Kenneth Jernigan Fund. Alan and Joy Harris, along with Joy's sister, Jay Cobb, worked to organize the first-time convention attendee applications into a list of recipients to help them attend the NFB National Convention for the first time. Every year, a small group of people would miss the distribution times and call Alan to tell him their story. Alan and his big heart would reassure the recipient and say he would take care of it. My phone would then ring, and I would hear Alan say, Well, you know I heard from so-and-so, and he'd launch into the story. I'm positive he sprinkled Alan dust on it to pull my heartstrings. I was so fortunate to meet and consider Alan and Joy my friends. I miss Alan's big hugs and wonderful stories. Barbara Pierce shares these memories. My friendship with Alan goes back to the 1970s. 
He was a high school teacher at that time, and I can remember thinking what a wonderful teacher he must have been. Warm, funny, casual, and no nonsense. He got things done and had a wonderful way of organizing people and getting them to do their best. I remember knack tracking in Edina, Minnesota, one November in the mid-80s. When our picket line was moving, there was no room for pedestrians on the sidewalk. The hotel was unhappy, so it was not long until the police appeared intent on getting us to clear the walk. Alan was in the small group of Federation leaders negotiating with the police. We had no idea what was being discussed. We were cuddled together, close to a hundred strong, waiting in the bitter cold to hear what would be decided. Suddenly, Alan turned around to face us. In that booming voice that could be heard across a gym or a pool, he shouted to us, Listen up! I want to hear some spontaneous singing now! Apparently, the police were adamant that we could not walk and block the sidewalk. Someone on our side asked if we could just stand in a group and engage in spontaneous singing. That is what the police agreed to. So sing we did, for five hours, in the cold, with the wind blowing. Luckily, we had a sizable collection of knack songs and people like Sandy Halverson to help lead us and keep us on pitch. But what I remember best was Alan's shouted instruction for, Spontaneous singing, now! Here are the remarks from our national board member and state president of Alabama, Barbara Manuel. When the Harrises moved to Alabama, everyone was elated to have them here. Allen continued his leadership role within the National Federation of the Blind as soon as he got here. His wisdom, intellect, and advocacy were even more apparent up close. Frank Lee was the affiliate president when they arrived, and Allen and Joy immediately became active with our Alabama affiliate. Allen had been a dynamic leader of the organization for 40 years or more, and his wisdom was greatly appreciated here. Over the years, Allen and Joy developed unbreakable bonds with our members. After Joy's death and Allen revealed his plans to move back to Michigan, members were heartbroken, but we truly understood his wish to be with his family. As we reminisce about him and his contributions to the blind community, we will be eternally grateful to him. Rest in peace, Allen. We conclude with words selected by his family to convey both their grief and joy. We share in these and will forever hold Alan in our hearts. O oh Lord, I have lived this day to bury one I love. My gratitude is as full as my grief, and my peace is as deep as my pain, all because of you. I need you as never before. Shepherd my soul through these dry and heavy days. You send us to earth for this reason, and then you receive us again unto yourself. I understand this cycle, but I wasn't quite as ready to let go of this one as I thought I'd be. All my life I've known that some day this would happen, but the finality and reality of it are piercing. One thing I know is that death cannot kill love, and human hands can't bury it. On this, my loved one's resurrection day, I give you praise for a life well lived. President's Message by Mark Riccobono a photo appears on the page, the caption, Mark Riccobono. From the editor. This message was taken from the January issue of Imagineering Our Future, a monthly email publication that helps in keeping members, friends, and donors up to date on the programs of our organization. The message is tremendous, and any chance to emphasize Braille Day and our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is one we are glad to use. Dear Friends, the National Federation of the Blind began 2023 by celebrating World Braille Day on January 4, the birth date of Louis Braille. Braille is an important tool for so many aspects of life. I was not given instruction in Braille until the summer I turned 21 years old. 
It was like a renewal. It opened new doors, and it allowed me to make new resolutions for my future. It always feels appropriate to launch a new year celebrating Braille. On January 4, our partners at the American Printing House for the Blind announced the name for the dynamic tactile display they are developing in partnership with both Humanware and the National Federation of the Blind. Because the most efficient way to read Braille is two-handed and the motions outline the frame of a butterfly, the new multi-line display, which will simultaneously display tactile graphics and Braille, is named Monarch. Monarch could revolutionize the way we teach blind children by giving them access to graphics at the same time and with the same ease as sighted children. As a parent of two blind children, I experience the hardship that comes when my daughters are denied the same educational materials as their peers. And I might enjoy access to tactile displays of maps and art myself. I doubt we have imagined all the applications for a dynamic tactile display yet, but I look forward to discovering them. Shortly after World Braille Day, our nation celebrates Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a day of service. To my knowledge, Dr. King and the Federation's first president, Dr. Tenbrook, never met, but I sometimes imagine the lively discussion that would have occurred between these two civil rights champions. The work of these important figures and the intersections of their work continue to be as pressing as ever in 2023. In the organized blind movement, we continue to seek a deeper understanding of intersecting characteristics within our community. The diversity of our membership and fostering an inclusive organization is essential to the future of the National Federation of the Blind. I hope you will take time to work on our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, attend some of our DEI events, and visit our DEI page to learn more and read my letter about the meaningful process of improving our movement. These can be found at https colon slash slash nfb.org slash get dash involved slash diversity dash equity dash inclusion. Sincerely, Mark A. Riccobono, President, National Federation of the Blind. Engineering a New Response, Transforming At-Home Testing Through Partnership with the Blind by Jill Heemskirk. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Jill Heemskirk. From the Editor. Jill Heemskirk is the Deputy Director of the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering at the National Institutes of Health. Here are the words President Riccobono used to introduce her talk about our partnership to make possible at-home testing. We've discussed extensively at this convention our disappointment with the initial government announcement about the at-home COVID testing program, but from January 3 forward, we, from the beginning, we have been very clear with the administration of all the tools that we have to compel the government to get it right. We want to be a partner. We want to help get this right for all at-home testing in the future. And when we did get the attention of the government, our experience has been, especially with the leadership at the National Institutes of Health, they've said, you know what? We did this quickly. We didn't get it right on accessibility but we are going to nail this going forward. And here's what I want to say about that. Here's what I want to say about that. You may not realize that at-home COVID testing is changing the nature of at-home testing forever. In the month of February alone, more Americans took at-home COVID tests in that month than took at-home pregnancy tests in all of 2021. That means this is a big opportunity to innovate. 
And I think we should really be focused on the fact that the government and especially the leadership at NIH has rallied to our call for equal access. And not only that, they have called on us, the National Federation of the Blind, to be a trusted expert in helping them get it right. So I'm really excited to have with us at this convention the Deputy Director of the National Institutes of Health, Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering Program. Uh, I talked about it extensively in our uh, presidential report. Please welcome Dr. Jill Heemskirk. I'm really wondering what to make of that intro music. <laughs> you guys are a hoot. Um, yes, so uh, thank you for that nice introduction, and, and good afternoon, everybody. I am, I am Jill Heemskirk, um, Deputy Director of, we'll say, NIBIB. You heard the full name, and it's a mouthful, but really what we are is the Engineering Institute. Uh, at the National Institutes of Health. The NIH is one of the largest, is actually the largest funder of biomedical research in the world and funds most of the research done at universities, small businesses, and research institutions in this country. It's actually made up of 27 different institutes and centers, and you know at least one because Dr. Tony Fauci runs the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Um, that's, that's one of the biggest NIH institutes. Engineering is a smaller one, but we're, we're mighty. We're small but mighty. And uh, when the pandemic started, Congress gave the NIH a lot of money to, to develop new vaccines, new treatments, and new tests for COVID. The Engineering Institute, our institute, NIBIB, was charged with developing COVID tests, which is a perfect role for the engineering community. And you'll remember at the beginning of the pandemic how very hard it was to get a COVID test, and then once you got your test, how long it took to get the results back. Yeah, you, you, that's right, you couldn't even get them. Um, so, um, I'm going to tell you today about a program we started called RADx, and RADx stands for Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics. And we've been tremendously successful in delivering about um, half of the diagnostics that are performed in the country now, not only in laboratories, but also at the point of care in doctors' offices and clinics and um, the home tests that, that we all are, are so grateful to have. But really, the big story today is our partnership with NFB to make home tests more accessible for people with blindness and low vision. So um, as, as we just heard, uh, when the government started distributing free tests to um, people in the country early this year, 
NFB and other advocacy groups quickly did some very important and very effective outreach to the government. And they pointed out that while it's great to have tests in the country, the tests that we have are not accessible to people with blindness and low vision and other disabilities. And we, we completely agree and recognize that everybody needs tests that can be taken easily, independently, and, and confidentially. And so I'm going to tell you today about uh, RADx effort to make accessible tests a reality. I'm going to first, though, describe the RADx program because it's unique and it's quite a powerful process for accelerating research and development. NIBIB received funding from Congress for COVID tests because we already had a network in place since 2007 that was developing um, point-of-care tests and home tests for, for lots of different diseases and conditions. We quickly expanded that network in April of 2020 to focus on COVID test development. We had four academic centers at the time and a coordinating center called CIMIT at Mass General Hospital. And what we did was we established new core resources to validate tests, conduct clinical studies that the FDA needs for authorization, and we set up one resource that is truly unique at NIH called the Deployment Core at CIMIT, which has all of the expertise in-house to get tests from the idea stage all the way out to the market. And what we did is provide much more than funding to these manufacturers. We provided this wraparound support to the companies developing tests that managed issues around supply chain, manufacturing, FDA authorization. We helped them solve every problem in getting an entirely new kind of test to the marketplace. And the experts in the deployment course spent the last two years working with over 900 experts from multiple sectors to create an entirely new ecosystem of at-home and point-of-care tests in the U.S. We started with a broad call for technology solutions as soon as we got the money in April, and this really galvanized the engineering community. We were amazed that we attracted 824 separate proposals for tests. Um, from, from companies and academic institutions. And to deal with this onslaught of applications and proposals, we set up a fast-moving pipeline to evaluate the tests and, and figure out which were the most important ones to support. We developed a unique process for NIH that almost resembles a venture capital approach. We started off with a viability assessment and then proposals that looked promising entered what we were calling the shark tank phase, where a team of experts worked closely with the companies over one or two weeks to look at all their data and their capabilities, and um, we examined all the aspects of the technology, the technical, the clinical, the regulatory, and the plans for manufacturing. And so we had a very good sense of which of these tests proposals were the most promising. We moved those into phase one, which was sort of a de-risking. Try to make the test, try to validate the test. We helped with that. 
And those that were successful moved to phase two, where there was a very large scale investment to get the clinical studies done for the FDA and to scale up the tests for the marketplace. And this novel hands-on process has proved to be tremendously successful, and we actually reduced what is typically a six-month test development timeline down to as little as six months. So what have we accomplished so far? We have delivered 2.6 billion tests to the United States. That's billion with a B. The For, for comparison, last year in the U.S., there were 9,000 pregnancy tests taken. So that is just a completely different scale. These tests include not only laboratory, but point of care and home tests, and represent about half of the tests that are available in the U.S. now. We have supported tests all the way to FDA authorization. We have 44 FDA authorizations under our belt, including 10 for at-home tests. And we've got more on the way. In this process, we've worked with more than 100 manufacturers, and we're relying on our relationships with these companies to help in our now effort to develop more accessible tests for people with blindness and disabilities. We are still um, actively working and developing new tests and continuing with this successful pipeline. Central to this meeting, of course, is developing tests that can be used independently by people with blindness and low vision. But we plan now that accessibility will be built into all of our development efforts, including efforts including efforts to develop at-home tests that are as reliable as lab tests. We also um, would like to broaden our efforts to other t diseases, for example, respiratory infections like flu and RSV. And we'd like to spur innovation and the cost drivers for tests and get tests to the market that are not only accessible but cost as little as $5 a test. So, so the, and it's funny to look back um, at the start of this project. I thought if we could just have a COVID test that was like a pregnancy test, that would be great. We'd be done. And then we get to that point and we realize, oh, they're not accessible. They're not affordable. They're not very sensitive. So there's still a lot to be done. And that is where the partnership with NFB comes in. Once the, the NFB and other groups reached out to the government about the importance of accessible tests, the first thing we did in RADx was to organize a listening session. Actually, that was the second thing we did. The first thing we did was regret that we had not had accessibility built in at the, at the outset. We set up a listening session so that we could talk to um, the users and understand the challenges in the accessibility of, of at-home tests. We invited advocates from the um, disability community, the aging community, and the, the blind and low vision communities. 
the important, um, beyond just listening, the important goal here was to set up relationships that we could, uh, so that we could integrate these users into what we knew was going to be an ongoing process to develop tests. We did not want to have a single engagement and then go from there. We, we wanted to have active partners, and I have to say that NFB has been incredibly generous with their time and education and, and resources. We also invited the um, six, six of the federal agencies that have accessibility as part of their mission, including multiple institutes from NIH, the CDC, FDA, the Administrative Administration for Community Living, the National Council on Disability, and the U.S. Access Board. And we had, we had at this meeting three breakout sessions, one blind and low vision, one fine motor impairment, and one for older adults. And we were, it was incredibly revealing for us to hear about things that we had not even considered, incredibly valuable. And one thing that we did notice was that these groups in their separate breakout groups often came up with the same challenges regardless of, of what um, the, the, the challenge was. And they were actually challenges that, that we all have with these tests. The instructions was a big one. Small print, complicated, um, few language options, no braille at all, and often no simple step-by-step instructions. The boxes were difficult because there's no scannable identifier. So you have a box and you don't know what's in it. You don't know what instructions to look for. The test procedure itself is, is, is challenging to, to truly almost everybody. There are too many steps in these uh, processes. The need to count drops of fluid and aim into a tiny hole on the device multiple little small parts in the box, um, and instructions that say things like, put the drops in the top hole. Well, if you don't know which end of the device is up, you don't know what's t the top hole and what's the bottom hole. And I think especially vexing for people with blindness, the repeated instruction not to touch this and not to touch that is just not helpful at all. And then also key for people with blindness is that the result appears often as a, as a little faint line on a strip. There's no simple interpretation that says your test is positive or your test is negative. And although some of the tests work with smartphones, they're not accessible to many people. We learned that as many as 40% of these communities don't have access to cell phones. So we are taking a two-pronged approach here. One prong is the fastest approach, which is to modify existing tests. And the other prong is the best approach, which is a longer-term plan to design accessible tests with accessibility built into the design from the very beginning, which clearly is the preferred approach. We'll be announcing a solicitation for proposals um, in just a matter of just a few weeks. 
Um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about our process for test modification, which um, we're very engaged and excited about. Um, Illum is a good example of a, of a reasonably accessible test, and that was uh, noted by the NFB in their own accessibility evaluation. And the government, I want to make sure I tell you, the government on covidtest.gov is now making Illum tests available for free to people with blindness and low vision. But even Illum, if you've taken it, has room for improvement. And that's the, that those improvements is what we want to bring to bear. So our process is a multi-step pipeline where we start with an accessibility evaluation. And then, based on the challenges observed for, for the particular test, design a prototype. And on the advice of NFB, um, some of our designers are people with blindness and people with low vision. So it's <laughs> getting advice from the experts is always the best idea. Yeah. Um, we then, once we have a prototype designed, we'll move into a user feedback phase. And the, the users, again, we want to we put these in the hands of people with blindness and low vision for them to tell us, did we get it right? And what we plan to do, this is a very high-touch process with lots of user involvement. We're going to go through that process twice. Tests that have gone into to the user feedback stage already, we've heard, no, that's not quite what we want. So what we're thinking is that we're going to start with a sort of early prototype, go back to the design stage with the feedback, and then produce a more mature uh, prototype and get uh, feedback again. And we'll do that as many times as we need to get something that is acceptable to the community. Hey! And then once we have an agreed upon product, we'll, we'll have the company, we'll support the companies to start producing those. We identified 24 different tests for this initial evaluation and 12 look very um, amenable to modification, and they've moved on into this prototype design phase. And our goal is to have more accessible tests being produced as early as this fall. We've had a lot of good news in this process already. Um, the, the first piece of good news we we uh, got was that as we reach out to the companies making these tests and tell them what we're doing, they are, they've been saying, that's great. Do this as quickly as possible. We're developing tests for other things. We want to know how to make them accessible. So they're very eager for the feedback and, and very, very eager for, um, to, get to, to start producing more accessible tests. They see a huge benefit in this. Um, we even had a company start making modifications before we got all the user feedback in, and we had to tell them to slow down. They were so eager. Um, the, other, the other very gratifying news is that uh, we have always collaborated closely with the FDA on our uh, RADx program, and they are also very excited about this and prepared to advise and accelerate the process. Any changes we make to the tests, are going to have to go through FDA review, and they're going to need data that tells them that 
the changes made don't do anything to make the test unsuccessful. So even something as simple as changing the instructions is going to take a, probably three months before there's a new product on the shelves. There are two other um, elements of the accessibility initiative that I wanted to mention. One is really focused on the instructions because two-thirds of our recommendations from the accessibility review have been about the instructions. So we've set up a separate fast-track process that can benefit all of the marketed tests. We'd like to develop a general format that all companies can use that is simplified, has larger type, has a new layout, and we will make this available so that any company, whether they're working with us or not, as they're developing their instructions, can use this template. And for web accessible instructions, we are um, addressing packaging for um, rapid access to the relevant instructions, such as, as QR codes. And I was really interested he to hear what Kellogg has. That's not, that you could do that from four feet away is uh, brilliant. Um, the FDA is poised to help, as I said, and they will review um, the uh, new instructions after all the users have agreed that, that the instructions are now actually helpful. The other effort that we're doing is a best practices effort because what we'd like is for the work that we're doing to benefit all test manufacturing as, as now home tests are commonplace because of COVID, there are going to be home tests for other conditions and disorders, glucose tests, pregnancy tests, flu tests, other diseases. And we want there to be a set of best practice guidelines available to the manufacturers so that they can develop them with accessibility in mind from the outset. So uh, in conclusion, um, everybody at Radex is really excited about this initiative. Um, we, we recognize that accessibility improvements will benefit everybody, and we're very grateful to the NFB for their role in stim not only stimulating this work, but for their ongoing support and advice as we work together to create accessible COVID tests. Thank you very much. What You Should Know to Win Yourself a Scholarship by Catherine Mendez. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Catherine Mendez. From the editor, Kate is not only a first-rate member, teacher, and citizen. She can really write, and this she does, to talk about scholarships and how students can go about getting one. Here is what she says. Each year, the NFB scholarship program receives many, many questions related to the hows and whys of the scholarship process. Many of the answers to these questions can be found on the NFB website. However, it is worth expanding on some of the responses to these frequently asked questions in order to give a fuller, more detailed view of the scholarship program. The following is an oversight of the program, its benefits, and the application process. Remember, you can't win if you don't apply, and now is the perfect time to start getting your application materials together. What is the purpose of the NFB scholarship program? The NFB Scholarship Program has two long-time overarching goals that continue to guide our work. 
First, the program seeks to support and promote the academic and career success of blind students nationwide by rewarding scholastic excellence. Second, the program serves as an opportunity to grow potential leaders within our organization by selecting applicants who exhibit ingenuity, creativity, and the ability to motivate others, and giving them access to Federation leadership at the highest levels through the convention mentoring process. How are scholarships selected and awarded? In April, the NFB Scholarship Committee will review all of the several hundred applications the program will have received on or before the March 31 deadline. This group of successful blind federation leaders from across the country will select the top 30 applicants who will become the scholarship class of 2023. There are far more qualified applications each year than there are scholarships to be awarded. Applicants who have applied before and have not yet received a scholarship should apply again. Some members of the scholarship class of 2022 received their scholarships after two or even three attempts. Don't give up. What is the value of an NFB scholarship? The process of applying for a scholarship and the experience of being a winner are the true prizes, above and beyond the financial award. Yes, each of the 30 finalists for 2023 will receive $8,000 to help pay for college expenses. But while the money will be quickly spent, the benefits of being a scholarship winner will last for a lifetime. During the NFB's national convention, which all finalists are required to attend in full, Scholarship finalists have the opportunity to network with other blind students, to exchange information and ideas, and to meet and talk with hundreds of blind people who are successfully employed in many occupations and professions. There is no dollar amount that can be assigned to the friendships that develop among the members of a scholarship class, as they support one another during an action-packed week of getting to know the Federation and sharing their own accomplishments and goals with us. Likewise, there isn't a financial equivalent to the unprecedented access our finalists gain every year to the outstanding leaders who serve as members of the scholarship committee. Through discussions with these successful blind mentors, scholarship winners have an unequaled opportunity to get to know our organization's leaders by asking questions and discussing their own ideas and opinions. They also have the chance to make all of our Federation experiences richer as they share their own diverse experiences and perspectives with us during the Board of Directors meeting and at student division events. When the gavel drops each year and convention draws to a close, the rewards of the scholarship program do not come to an end. Our winners continue to deepen their connections and maintain their collaboration with one another as they pursue their various academic degrees and professional goals. They continue to build relationships with the Federation through involvement with their state affiliates, strengthening and evolving the foundations laid during those initial applicant interviews and enriched during the week of the convention itself. Our winners develop and strengthen professional networks with other blind people in their chosen fields and with members who share their intersectional identities through the work of our divisions and groups. They serve on NABs, bracket, National Association of Blind Students, close bracket, boards, take on the work of the Federation and their affiliates, and carry what they have learned about the capacity of the blind into their schools, communities, and families. The scholarship checks are mailed and cashed in August, but the rewards of being an NFB scholarship recipient last for a lifetime. What constitutes an outstanding scholarship application? The best way to answer this is to begin by debunking some persistent myths around the scholarship selection process. Many think the key to becoming a scholarship winner is a high grade point average. While an applicant's GPA certainly has value because it demonstrates their ability to learn and be successful academically, 
This is by no means the only attribute that influences the decisions of the scholarship committee. Likewise, others believe that the secret to winning is abundant participation in extracurricular activities. Recognizing an applicant's willingness to take on commitments outside of school and or work can help the committee develop a portrait of a well-rounded individual. However, this also is not sufficient in itself to justify a scholarship award. Still, others think the magic scholarship winning ingredient is an applicant's level of commitment to the NFB. It is certainly true that the scholarship program provides our organization with a tremendous opportunity to develop future leaders, but scholarship awards are by no means restricted to members of the organization. The National Federation of the Blind is dedicated to creating opportunities for all blind people. Recipients of NFB scholarships need not be members of the NFB. Many of our past winners were not even aware of the NFB before they applied for our scholarships. Others speculate that the committee looks for winners among applicants from specific fields of study or specific demographics. However, over the years, students of all ages and in widely differing fields have become finalists. The class of 2022 included students entering their freshman year, as well as older students who were nearly ready to write their Ph.D. dissertations. Past scholarship winners are working toward credentials for employment in many diverse fields. The truthful answer is that there is no one attribute that serves as the proverbial silver bullet for guaranteeing that an applicant will receive a scholarship. The committee examines each application on its own merits and considers each applicant within the context of the materials they submit. The best way to ensure yourself a chance to win is to apply by submitting a complete application that represents your achievements and goals with authenticity. What constitutes a complete scholarship application? A complete application consists of the official application form and a student essay, plus these supporting documents, student transcripts, one letter of recommendation, and proof of legal blindness. Each applicant must also complete an interview with the NFB affiliate president of their state of residence or the state where they will be attending school. High school seniors may also include a copy of the results of their ACT, SAT, or other college entrance exams. Students should carefully consider who can do the best job of writing their letter of reference. These letters should support the application by being full of facts and observations that will help the members of the committee see the applicant as a bright, active student and citizen. Remember to use the spell checker or a human proofreader before submitting the essay. In an effective essay, the applicant will talk about their life in a way that gives the committee insight into who they are. The essay should cover the ways in which each applicant lives successfully as a blind person and describe the applicant's personal goals for the future. Information about positions of leadership is especially helpful. Committee members give the essay a great deal of attention. It is true that the requirements for an NFB scholarship application are varied and extensive. It is a good idea to begin gathering the required documents as soon as possible and to begin reaching out to the prospective authors of recommendation letters to give those folks plenty of time to craft thoughtful, detailed letters that reflect well on each applicant. If everything is uploaded but the Submit button is not pressed, will the application be considered? No, only submitted applications are considered by the committee. Remember, applicants can return to their online form as often as necessary during the application window, but must hit the Submit button for their application to be considered complete. Those who have properly submitted will receive an email confirmation. If an applicant does not receive this confirmation email, their application will not be considered complete and cannot be reviewed by the committee. They should go back and hit Submit as soon as possible to guarantee that their application will be considered. Who is eligible to win an NFB scholarship? 
Are you a legally blind student? Do you reside in one of the 50 states, the District of Columbia, or Puerto Rico? Will you be pursuing a full-time, post-secondary course of study in a degree program at an accredited United States institution in the fall of the 2023-2024 academic year? Will you be 18 years of age by July 1, 2023? And will you be able to participate in person in the entire NFB National Convention and in all scheduled scholarship activities from July 1 through July 6 if chosen as a finalist? If you answered yes to all these questions, please visit https colon slash slash nfb.org slash scholarships to begin the online application today. Who are the blind who lead the blind? Those elected in 2022. Periodically, we run the article, Who are the Blind Who Lead the Blind? But for this issue, we have chosen to highlight the newest members elected at our most recent convention in July of 2022. Enjoy becoming acquainted with these talented and dedicated people who give so much to serve us. Donald Porterfield, husband, uncle, brother, son, prosecutor, and a member of the National Federation of the Blind. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Donald Porterfield. Donald Porterfield was elected to the National Federation of the Blind's Board of Directors in July of 2022. He is also the president of the NFB of Arizona. Born in 1959 to James and Doris Porterfield, he has three siblings, an older sister, an older brother, and his twin. His blindness is caused by diabetes and did not manifest itself until he was 48 years old. Donald says that he was a medium-to-good student, but his school experience was significantly enhanced by his participation as an athlete. I was lucky to be good at sports, and that brought me some friends. But given that I'm an introvert, the thing that I feel most fortunate about is that I am a twin and was born with my best childhood friend. The onset of Donald's blindness occurred in the same year his father died, so he and his family had two crises to deal with in the same year. For some, their adjustment to Donald's blindness was a slow process, while some adjusted quicker. Some saw that it was their responsibility to take care of Donald, but that sense of obligation they felt didn't last long when it became clear that Donald was doing his own cooking, laundry, and had no trouble with his personal hygiene. This he could boast even before any training in the skills of blindness. From as early as he can remember, Donald wanted to be a prosecutor, but it took him some time to get to a place where he could go to law school. He spent the first 23 years of his working career in the golf resort and hospitality industry. For much of that time he was an executive, and many years of his tenure with the company saw him as vice president of food and beverage operations. This was not an easy job for him, because unquestionably he is an introvert and had to learn how to be gregarious and outgoing. He laughs that his twin brother can walk into a supermarket and walk out knowing 100 people, but this was not how Donald experienced life. Learning to be outgoing has been a challenge. My former manager and mentor was somewhat bombastic and always put me into a position where I had to improve my stage presence. At times he certainly made me uncomfortable, but this paid off not only in my career as a manager, but would reveal itself as beneficial in the other twists and turns that would come to make up my life. It was in the second week of his second year of law school that Donald, at age 48, began experiencing real vision problems. He had noticed a slight decrease in vision over time, and this he attributed to age. But on that fatal day, he found that he simply could not focus on any of the work before him. Figuring that he was fatigued, he went to take a nap. After the nap, his vision seemed normal again, but when he went back to school on the following Monday, 
the focus problems returned, so off to an ophthalmologist he went. The diagnosis was retinopathy, a result of his diabetes, and much of the next two years found him going to doctors once a week and trying different surgeries, all while managing his studies in law school. When I found that my reading speed dropped from 400 words a minute to 60 words a minute, I was afraid, but I soon realized that either I had to pack it in and leave, or figure it out and keep moving toward my dream. I chose the latter, and along the journey found out I was an auditory learner. Ultimately, I graduated with my law degree. After graduation, we had to try one more surgery. The surgeon thought he could restore most of my vision if he peeled off the scar tissue that had accumulated, but he tried, and he was wrong. The result is that now I can still see light and certain shapes, but I can no longer perceive the difference between most colors. Donald graduated from law school at age 50 and moved back to Arizona. I knew that if I was going to be a competent lawyer and blind man, I needed blindness training. He first learned about the National Federation of the Blind while in training at Savvy Services for the Blind from the person who would become his wife and is now the primary partner in everything he does. He did his homework and concluded that he liked the grassroots civil rights organization that he found in the National Federation of the Blind. I grew up as a black kid in the 60s, so I understood discrimination and was experiencing the same things as a blind person. Not only did I get disparate treatment, but I was also being patronized and in not very subtle ways told that I was incapable. I realized I had the spirit of a federationist without being a member, and in the federation was where I wanted to be. So off he went to a chapter meeting, and later on that year to a national convention where he took his first ride with a blind driver as President Riccobono chauffeured him around the hotel parking lot. He was hooked. After gaining the skills, tools, and competency through training, Donald fulfilled his lifelong professional dream by becoming a deputy county attorney, serving as a prosecutor for Pima County, Arizona. When he was going through law school, many of his colleagues mistakenly believed that he wanted to be a defense attorney but he believes the role of a prosecutor is that of a minister of justice. Being a prosecutor is more than just prosecuting people who commit crimes. It is about making sure everyone connected to the criminal justice system is treated fairly and receives justice. Donald's first significant job in the Federation was serving as the legislative director for the Arizona affiliate. His tenure has witnessed the passage of the statute that protects the rights of blind parents, and he is equally happy about the pieces of legislation that he and his affiliate members have kept from becoming law. Many of these attempts have involved increasing regulations on guide dogs and their users, and all of these have been successfully turned back. When asked what asset he thought to be the most significant of those he brings to the Federation, he said, I can easily talk to policymakers about blind equality, and I love doing it. We have many members that don't have that comfort level, and, because I am an introvert, I understand their unwillingness and perhaps inability to speak out. Given my background, I've learned to work around my innate inability, and I think this makes me a stronger advocate. Hamilton is one of my favorite plays. In Hamilton, they ask the question, Who will tell your story? That same question has been asked of us. Only we can tell our story because we are the only ones living an authentic life as a blind person. I used to have to work at getting into the character of being an advocate a describer of life as I and others live it, but I now realize I am not playing another character. I am simply being me. I like educating the public about the positive truths about blind people. I was faced with so many misconceptions when I was ready to take the bar examination and was searching for a job 
that any chance to minimize these for others is one I enthusiastically embrace. Given that a major goal of his life is to live one that is full, balanced, and enjoyable, his activities go well beyond his professional work and organizational commitment. He and Amy love to travel and to embrace the new experiences it offers. He loves jazz, and they spend a lot of time listening to this art form and going to concerts. He also loves to read, and often he and Amy find themselves sharing a book and the pleasant conversations that accompany the reading. I love my wife Amy, and everything I do, I do with her. We are passionate about civil rights for the blind, and we often say our family is in the civil rights business. I love how fortunate we are that we can travel this path together. Sheila Wright, Rehabilitation Professional, Entrepreneur, Leader of Blind People A photo appears on the page, the caption, Sheila Wright. Sheila Wright was elected to the National Federation of the Blind Board of Directors in July of 2022. Her service in the National Federation of the Blind began in South Carolina, was evidenced in Nebraska, and for more than three decades, the state of Missouri has been the beneficiary of her initiative, hard work, and follow-through. When Sheila was born, her vision problem was known almost immediately, but the extent to which she could not see was often downplayed, and the word blindness was never used. She needed glasses by the time she started school, but not much was provided in the way of accommodation except letting her sit closer to the front of the class. By the time she got to the end of elementary school, she was sitting about four feet from the blackboard near the teacher's desk. Sheila went to elementary school in Hartsville, South Carolina, and she got there by walking or riding her bicycle. When in junior high, the school was too far away, she got herself to the elementary school in the same way and then caught a bus. By her senior year in high school, it was determined she needed large print books. She often ran into the problem of getting ones that were out of date. To her great frustration, she could study all she should, but still end up writing down the wrong answers because her books were not the newest edition being used by her teacher and classmates. Soon, she got to the place where she started leaving books in the locker and relying as much as she could on what she heard in class. Because she brought no alternative techniques to the game, her grades in junior high and high school were less than stellar. Sheila remembers first being diagnosed as blind when she was 16. Before, she was always dismissed after examinations, and her doctors met with her parents, who were told that there was nothing they could do for her, and they were referred back to the optometrist, who they said was doing an excellent job fitting her with glasses. Sheila believes that the inaccurate diagnosis and hesitancy by the ophthalmologist to talk with patient and family did not provide them with the information needed to seek out and support appropriate specialized educational services. This is the reason Sheila has been so adamant about young blind children getting diagnosed quickly and ensuring that students begin learning Braille at an early age. It certainly should have been before age 16 that I heard I had a progressive eye condition that was so significant that I was already legally blind. The doctor told me I should learn Braille because it would be easier to learn at 16 than at 30 when there would be no other options. When Sheila started to plug into vocational rehabilitation services, she immediately had to undergo psychological testing a custom of the agency at that time. Their prediction of the psychologist and her rehabilitation counselor was that she would not make it beyond one semester in college. The only reason you want to go to college is to get your MRS degree, she was dismissively told. None of my cousins went to college, but when I was told I could not, that was very motivating for me. Being told I can't often is the prescription for I can and I will. Her motivation Hard work and innate ability meant that Sheila graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. 
She chose this path to reduce the number of classes in mathematics and science. She then entered a master's program in education, specializing in vocational rehabilitation counseling, and after successfully securing that degree, she has managed to work in three states. Sheila worked for several months at the Iowa Commission for the Blind as a rehabilitation associate. This was an opportunity for her to see vocational rehabilitation for the blind at its best, and this job gave her invaluable experience. When she returned to South Carolina, she marketed her skills to a nursing home that had several blind residents. She was hired to work with blind and visually impaired residents on how to travel safely around the facility. She also assisted them in participating in social and recreational activities. Additionally, she taught staff to help blind residents be more independent. She found this job exciting for about six months and worked until a full-time job in the field of vocational rehabilitation became a reality. In the state of South Carolina, the General Rehabilitation Agency discriminated against blind people, saying that if a blind person wanted a job in the field, they should go to the Agency for the Blind because the General Agency needed its counselors to travel. The reality was that rehabilitation counselors at the Commission for the Blind traveled more than their counterparts in the General Agency. When Sheila took a job at the South Carolina Commission for the Blind, she did so with some reluctance. She really wanted to work in some other field and then come back to rehabilitation for a career, but that is not the way things worked out. I was really afraid that I would end up being pigeonholed into a job that I didn't want, and I wanted rehab to be something that I actively chose to do with my heart and my soul. She worked at the commission for about three years, but periodically she would be solicited by Dr. James Nyman, the director of the Nebraska Agency. At first, she was cavalier about the interviews, at one point telling him that the only job she would be interested in was the one he held. After more calls and some more negotiation, she eventually took a job as the director of the Orientation and Adjustment Center. Taking that job was a gutsy thing for her to attempt, given that she had never been to an orientation center, had never had any cane travel, and what braille she knew came from her own learning. She relied on friends when she needed help and advice in any of these areas, and though it certainly was not the easiest or most traditional way to begin managing a program, she embraced and overcame the challenge. Those friends also helped her solidify her understanding and internalization of the philosophy of the National Federation of the Blind, a view she was familiar with but was never sure she thoroughly understood or had worked at integrating into her being. After working in this position for three years, she decided it was time to move along. Though Sheila would return to the agency for some temporary work to help them in solving a staffing problem, eventually she came to Missouri. The job search she conducted saw her sending out 30 to 40 job applications a week for about six months, and, strangely, on the day when she received a job offer from Missouri, there were two of them. One was with the state agency, and the other with a private agency in St. Louis, called ABLE. She took the counseling job with the state agency and moved to Kansas City. She was challenged because at that time there were no blind counselors working for the agency. If you were blind, you worked as a rehabilitation teacher who was paired with a sighted assistant. As a counselor, they did not even give me as much as a braille writer. Her work for the agency started in July of 1984 and continued until August of 1988. She then went to work for Blind Focus, a private agency, where she worked until 1995. She is particularly proud of the program she helped to build that was for students transitioning from high school to college to work. Believing that she had spent too much of her life working in the field of blindness and wanting to move into event planning, Sheila left Blind Focus in 1995. Though she did not pursue the career she thought she would, 
She has held a number of jobs that have resulted in new programs and good programming for the blind. She helped in shaping the Technology Access Program for Internet, an innovative program in Missouri that provides screen reading software and other assistive technology to allow blind people to gain access to the resources found on the Internet. She has worked as a consumer support provider for that program since its inception and continues to do so, providing direct teaching and product evaluation. She contracted with Missouri Rehabilitation Services for the Blind to conduct the Codemaster Project, which focused on blind adults needing intensive training in Braille, and she has contracted to do program evaluations in other states. Nationally, one of the efforts that Sheila is most proud of is participating in the creation of the National Association of Blind Rehabilitation Professionals. Before this group, many of us felt like lone rangers out in our agencies, and I saw this group as being really important to give us inspiration as we tried through our daily work to bring about the hopes and dreams that are embodied in the Federation. Of course, her work with the National Federation of the Blind has kept her extremely busy. She has been an active member in all the states in which she has lived, joining the Missouri Board in 1993, becoming second vice president in 2001, moving to first vice president in 2003, and assuming her current job as affiliate president in 2017. Since Gary Wonder was the state president for much of the time before she assumed that title, he can tell you that one of the things that elevates people to office and keeps them there is the willingness to follow through on commitments. He says, Never did Sheila leave us hanging out on a limb. If she promised to make a call, it was made. Write a letter, and it was written. Chair a committee, and it met. Organize a legislative event, and it was organized. And wow, could she keep a list. She has always been an active supporter of anything we put our name on, but her support has not always been without criticism. When I sent out an annual list of affiliate committees and asked my ranking officer, Sheila, what she thought of the appointments I had made, she said, I often wonder whether you are drunk when you make these lists. You can bet I worked harder at seeking her advice when drawing up future lists. Like the rest of us, Sheila has a life beyond work and Federation activities. She married Harvey Fisher in 1985, he being a rehabilitation teacher for the state agency. Unfortunately, Harvey died as a result of cancer in 1991. In 1996, she married Jeff Wright, an able and loving helpmate. Jeff shares her love of the Federation, and in addition to helping her do many behind-the-scenes tasks, he has also served as a chapter officer for many years. Together, they work hard in their church and strive to live the values in which they deeply believe. Sheila's hobbies include tandem biking, swimming, playing the guitar, and reading. She also enjoys sports, and those who know her are well aware they should not call when either the Kansas City Chiefs or the South Carolina Gamecocks are playing. Sheila says that she believes one of the greatest assets she brings to the Federation is developing projects and programs, and then overseeing many of them until they are well established. I like being a change agent and the new endeavors we create. I am proud of the fact that we established a program for young students called Mission Believe, another program called Mission Beam, and an active group that is now known as the Cane Drivers. I am not always the person who does most of the work, but one of my strengths is in building teams and in helping them get things done. I have enjoyed watching things change, such as seeing kids who come to the convention with canes, learning to use them, and getting around by themselves. I was glad that Nebraska was part of this, and that at the time I was part of the Nebraska agency and the affiliate. When I look back on advancements we have made, I am proud of all of them. Whether they bear my handprint is less important than the fact that I have actively participated in the Federation 
and therefore have something to do with everything that gives blind people an opportunity to live a better life. Grace Pyers, caregiver, mother, wife, role model, affiliate leader. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Grace Pyers. Grace Pyers was elected to the National Federation of the Blind Board of Directors in July of 2022 and also serves as the president of the National Federation of the Blind of Rhode Island. She was born in Portugal in 1970. Within three months, Grace's mother, Virginia, realized that something was wrong with Grace's vision. She was not actively trying to look at things, nor did she track in the way that her mother had witnessed in other children. The first visit to a local pediatrician resulted in her mother's concerns being dismissed, but when other doctors were consulted, they agreed that there definitely was a problem, though to this day, no one has been able to accurately diagnose the reason for Grace's blindness. Some doctors have offered the opinion that she is blind because of retinitis pigmentosa, while others argued that it is most likely Leber's disease, given that she has never had any vision and the condition is genetic. Her parents did what genetic testing was available and were told there was a 25% chance that any future offspring would be blind. Her younger brother is blind, but the upside is that there are some important things they share together. Grace did not start school until she was 10. The Portuguese island on which she was born had no school for the blind, and both she and her parents were very upset by the residential experience at the school on a neighboring island. After this experience, the family made a real effort to come to the United States, and it was at this point that Grace really began her formal education. Coming to the United States was in some respects the end of my childhood. I didn't really know what to ask for, but all of the sudden I had to be an advocate for myself and, because they didn't speak English, for my parents as well. She was placed in the fourth grade to be near children her own age, but she certainly was in no position to do the work. She first had to learn English, then Braille, and it wasn't until the sixth grade that she really began to hit her stride. Before that time, she would rely on her cousin, a second grader who could read print, who would help her with learning to spell. She was elated when, in the seventh grade, she realized that she was independently doing work that let her study for and pass tests. I was quite excited when I was able to take home and do my homework. I know many students who said they couldn't stand it, but for me, the feeling was tremendous. Grace began receiving cane travel when she was 12 years old, and at first she had mixed feelings about the experience. I was afraid that people were going to see by my cane that I was blind, and I laugh now at my reluctance because it is clear to me that everyone already knew I was. Even as I felt this reluctance, I loved the independence I was getting. I was happy to be an independent traveler who could walk around the school by myself and could actually go to the ladies' room without another student assisting me. I was really excited when my parents and other adults let me walk alone once they realized I could travel safely with my cane. Making friends was very easy when I was a novelty, but as the novelty wore off, I began to find it more difficult when some of my friends dropped away. Luckily, I had a core group that I built during middle school, and although class changes in high school meant that we were not always together, some of those friendships survived, one of them even into college. Unfortunately for Grace, she grew up having few role models, and the idea that a person might go to a rehabilitation center was never raised as a possibility, not to mention a wonderful opportunity. Failing to see blind people she wanted to be like, she had what she categorizes as a meltdown at age 13 and angrily asked her teacher of the visually impaired what in the world a blind person was supposed to grow up and do and be. Her dream was to get an education, have a job, get married, and have a family. Her teacher was resourceful and took Grace to visit a lecture on health that was being given by a blind woman. 
The lecture was impressive, and the blind woman giving it was educated and well-spoken. She gave me hope. She let me know that I could do what she was doing, that I was smart, and that I could do anything I wanted to do. This was a major turning point in my life. This woman, named Monica, became a mentor throughout school and in my career. We still maintain some meaningful contact today. Grace remembers that the first time she learned that a piece of equipment could be modified for her use was when her family got a microwave oven. She couldn't use it, and this same teacher suggested that they mark it with dots. When I got those dots and we put them on, I felt like it was Christmas. Grace attended Rhode Island College, a four-year institution near where she lived. There she took a bachelor's degree in social work, and when she couldn't find a job, she went back to school and earned a master's degree in the same field. When she looked at the employment market after her bachelor's, she was surprised to find that so much of the work involved travel and that so little in the way of transportation existed for her. By the time she had gotten her master's degree, not only was she more qualified, but by then she enjoyed the benefits of an active paratransit system that allowed her to go to and from the homes of clients. Her first job was working part-time at an independent living center, a job that not only required significant travel, but one that also gave her the opportunity to do some of her work from an office. That part-time job eventually resulted in full-time employment, and it was there that Grace worked until 2003. She then took a job with the state of Rhode Island as a rehabilitation teacher. She did that job for six years, and what she found so amusing was that this person, who had never gotten the benefit of any formal rehabilitation teaching, was herself being asked to teach. She knew the techniques that needed teaching. What she didn't know was much about the art of teaching. She is thankful for the textbooks that taught her how to pass along knowledge that she learned from her mother to others who needed to learn how to make a bed, do laundry, and safely operate a hot stove. While working, she earned another master's degree, this one in rehabilitation counseling, and it qualified her for another job that she holds today. She works as a vocational rehabilitation counselor and has since 2009. As soon as Grace got a job, she felt free to expand what she was doing and began giving back. When she said that she wanted to join the National Federation of the Blind in 2000, the person she was talking with said, Are you sure? You don't have to. My response was that I now have a job and I want to do something to give back. I most certainly want to join the NFB. What I didn't realize at the time was that I would gain so much more from being a part of this movement. From the first meeting I attended, I was treated like an old friend. Grace says that she was pretty shy, but she felt comfortable, offering to help with tasks. Richard and Kathy Gaffney and other members were so welcoming that I brought my boyfriend and my brother. They both accompanied me to the state convention and joined on the spot. What Grace finds so sad is that in all of her contact with the rehabilitation system prior to employment, never did she find a role model or anyone willing to discuss with her their own blindness. Never did the people she worked with talk with her about blindness or put themselves front and center as people she might want to be like. From what she observed, those helping her, while well-intentioned, had problems dealing with their own blindness and embracing alternative techniques that would let them be comfortable with themselves and efficient in the things they did. The lesson Grace has taken from this is that it is necessary not only for her to teach attitudes and techniques, but to instill in her clients a sense that they can talk with her about blindness. She also hopes that the way she lives her life and the mastery she has gained in living life as a blind person will translate into her being a role model for those she serves. Working on legislation is of particular interest, and the passage of a parental rights bill has been immensely important to her. 
When she was having her son, a social worker was sent to visit her at the hospital. How will you know when to feed him, and how will you give him medicine, were the kinds of questions that were repeatedly asked. Of particular concern was that the social worker, learning that Grace and her husband, Robert, shared a house with sighted parents, kept wanting to be reassured that the sighted couple would be involved and went so far as to have a private conference with them. A second piece of legislation in which Grace takes pride allows for mail-in election ballots. Having a good relationship with the Secretary of State means she has been a part of evaluating the ballot-marking machines that were eventually purchased. Knowing what a barrier transportation was for her, she serves on a public advisory committee which seeks to improve transportation services to Rhode Island residents. She is working on legislation to expand transportation to all disabled Rhode Islanders. She is quick to note that she is not the primary person working on this legislation and that another member of the Federation is actually spearheading the effort. Like most busy people, there are times when Grace finds it difficult to juggle all of the responsibilities she has. Of course, there are the school meetings to attend, and since her parents still do not speak English, she accompanies them whenever they go to doctor appointments and acts as a translator. I am so lucky to have a job with some flexibility and with sick time I can use when needed. When my mother worked in a factory, she did not have this flexibility. I could only call her if there was a dire emergency. They just wouldn't have known how to reach her. I am glad that I can now get an occasional call or text when my son needs something. When not otherwise engaged, Grace likes to read, knit, and take long walks outside. I love the peace that comes in being outside with nature. It is me being me on my time. She also admits to being somewhat addicted to Netflix, a pleasure that she and her husband share together. She enjoys playing Uno with her nieces and again finds herself tremendously grateful for the contributions of Louis Braille in her life. I think my most important role in the Federation is to be a good listener, accept people where they are, and offer myself as a role model for those looking to be happy, to be productive, and to feel good about themselves. Sometimes life has meant hard work, but people need to see that often that what it takes and the rewards are well worth the effort. Barbara Manuel, blind entrepreneur, proud mother and grandmother, and activist. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Barbara Manuel. Barbara Manuel was raised in the small Alabama town of Citronelle, about 30 miles north of Mobile. She has retinitis pigmentosa, but did not know or encounter any blind people growing up, so she simply coped with her vision loss the best she could throughout her education in the local public schools. Her coping mechanisms included copying questions and assignments from close friends rather than trying to read the blackboard. Despite some struggles, she remembers being an average student. In her early 20s, Barbara took advantage of job training at the E.H. Gentry facility, operated by the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind in Talladega, to learn medical clerical work. When work in that field was no longer available, she took her first job in the Randolph Shepard Vending Program, working for another vendor that she met through an RP support group. After six years, a snack bar location at the Mobile City Garage became available. Ten years later, an opportunity to run a full cafeteria at the University of South Alabama Nursing School arose. Barbara and her employees served breakfast and lunch daily, and she also took advantage of catering opportunities, which she enjoyed immensely. Finally, Barbara obtained her current location at the United States Coast Guard Aviation Center in Mobile. She now manages 17 employees and runs an operation that serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner 365 days a year, as well as maintaining the facility's 72 sleeping quarters. She is proud that she often receives compliments about the food and facilities.
Barbara first learned about the National Federation of the Blind through a contact from her days at E.H. Gentry. That friend convinced her to attend an affiliate convention in Mobile sometime in the mid-1980s, which she says changed everything. She became the chapter president in Mobile in around 1989 and served in that capacity for 11 years while also rotating on and off the affiliate board of directors. After stepping down as Mobile chapter president, Barbara remained active and rose to affiliate vice president, which was the position she held when the late Joy Harris stepped down for health reasons in 2017. Under Barbara's leadership, the affiliate was successful in getting parental rights legislation enacted in 2019. I was so proud when we went to the governor's signing of that initiative, she says. When we can pull together, the sky's the limit. Barbara is proud of what she has been able to accomplish with a relatively small but growing team. Everyone can do something, even if it's just make a phone call, she says. At the same time, I always tell my members that we need each of them, and we need every blind person in Alabama to join and be an active part of our movement. The affiliate is currently engaged in a long-running battle with the state over accessible absentee voting, which has been a struggle because the Secretary of State did an about-face on supporting it, even though military and overseas voters can submit absentee ballots electronically. Because of her work in this area, Barbara has also become a member of the League of Women Voters. She is grateful to Luann Blake and the late Scott Labar for their assistance and is determined to keep up the fight. Barbara also serves on the board of the National Association of Blind Merchants, and in 2022, she was elected to the National Board of Directors. When she is not engaged in Federation activities, she enjoys spending time with her son and daughter-in-law, granddaughter and two great-granddaughters. She also enjoys traveling with her best friend, whom she has known since they were in the first grade. Reflecting on the character of our movement, Barbara recently said, the National Federation of the Blind strives to embrace one common thread that is tightly woven throughout our movement, blindness. We are a close-knit family, and it's our goal to create a place for every blind individual from every walk of life. Saying Thank You and Encouraging Further Accessibility by John Miller A photo appears on the page, the caption, John Miller. From the Editor John Miller is on the cutting edge when it comes to working in a competitive field and bringing all kinds of innovative resources to get what he needs to do his job with distinction. He drafted this piece as a way to acknowledge the much-needed accessibility by one software company and to help us continue to develop strategies to determine how to make such practices widespread. Here is what he says. As a minority who doesn't bring large numbers to the marketplace, we must work hard to figure out how to increase the number of devices we can use productively and with the same ease as our sighted peers. To employers, we offer ourselves as true competitors capable of bringing as much to our jobs as our sighted colleagues. When it comes to motivation, brains, and education, we do well. But when the technology used in our workplace is either unusable or so inefficient that its use detracts significantly from our work product, the challenges are formidable. How do we go about convincing technology developers and distributors, especially those who deal in hardware and software, to design it in such a way that it is efficiently usable without vision? Perhaps of equal importance, how do we thank those who have made or improved their products so that they meet the standard? Beyond writing a note of personal thanks, how do we express to the broader community the significance of what has been done? I have worked in the field of electrical engineering and signal processing for over 10 years, having gotten my Ph.D. in electrical and computer engineering. In my work career, I have held jobs at Qualcomm, Nokia, and University of California, San Diego. 
I currently work at a defense contractor in San Diego, California. In all of these jobs, I have struggled to get material I can read and interpret non-visually. A piece of software I use that is essential to my job is MATLAB from MathWorks, and recently its developers have taken significant steps that enhance my ability to use it and hence my productivity on the job. Using MATLAB, I can generate plots and prototype engineering solutions. I contacted MathWorks about a problem in their software for blind users who used the JAWS screen reader. MathWorks scheduled a one-hour meeting in Microsoft Teams to discuss the problem with me. MathWorks invited me to be a member of their newly formed Community Access Board. I reported the problem in July 2022. I verified that MathWorks Fix is working well in January 2023. I wish to ask other blind individuals what software applications they are using to succeed in the workplace. There is an opportunity to form a relationship between the blind community and the authors of these software applications. I conclude with what may have been better placed at the beginning of this article, my goals for writing and asking that it be published. I want to thank MathWorks, and equally important, I want to figure out how to thank other companies when they do the right thing. I want to go beyond making the moral case that what they have done is good and demonstrate that there are tangible reasons why making products sufficiently accessible is in the interest of business, government, education, and any other entity that offers products and services to the public. So my article is an open invitation for the sharing of good ideas, new paradigms, and innovative approaches we may come upon if together we all put our minds to this most important of tasks. Disability Intersections, Blindness and Autism by Matt Langland A photo appears on the page, the caption, Matt Langland. From the editor, This article originally appeared in the spring issue of the Minnesota Bulletin, the newsletter of the National Federation of the Blind of Minnesota. It challenges us to look beyond blindness and to embrace others who have disabilities that also need attention and understanding. Here is the way it was introduced. Editor's Note this is the winning entry in the Metro Chapters essay contest held earlier this year. Matt Langland serves, among other roles, as a member of our state legislative committee. I was born 16 weeks premature in June 1986. When I was a few months old, it was discovered that I had retinopathy of prematurity, ROP. While a small amount of vision in my right eye was saved, I am legally blind. When I was about six months old, the teacher of blind students came to visit with my parents and started conducting some home visits with me. My mom researched as much about blindness as she possibly could and attended her first NFB convention in 1987 to learn about blindness. Upon learning I was considered a blind person around three or four, it did not bother me that much since I had usable vision. Another funny thing was happening, though. I was also strange in other ways. Not only was I blind, but other interesting behaviors were appearing. From when I was as young as I can remember, I developed an obsession with vacuum cleaners. This obsession eventually slowly wore off when I started school. I would also get bent out of shape and throw temper tantrums when plans changed or things did not go exactly as I wanted. I liked routines and things to stay the same, and if they did not, that would upset me. I would get upset at the silliest little things like plans changing unexpectedly. Interacting with kids my own age sometimes felt forced. My mom had a few birthday parties for me when I was young, inviting kids from preschool or daycare whom I did know, and I struggled to play with them, as I preferred to be antisocial. By the time I entered kindergarten, the main issue to be dealt with was my blindness. I was starting to learn both Braille and print. I relied mostly on enlarged print for my schoolwork, and I would read some books for fun in Braille. 
Since my vision was quite usable and I could read print, I decided at this point that I was only visually impaired, not blind. My mom tried to tell me that I was legally blind and that I should really consider myself blind, but I was insistent that, because I could see something, I was not blind. Teachers made sure I got all the accommodations I needed, like explaining everything written on the board. I continued to proceed through elementary, middle, and high school this way. I continued to find strange new obsessions and preoccupations throughout elementary school. I started spending my free time listening to the local radio station KTRF. I started memorizing the phone numbers for about every business in town. A few times I would call the businesses after hours to see if they had answering machines and see what they said. I never had any reason to call any of the places. I just liked memorizing phone numbers. In fact, I did not want to talk to anyone on the phone. I had a phone phobia of sorts. If I had to talk on the phone to anyone, I would tense up, my throat would dry out, and my voice would lock up and start shaking when I attempted to talk. It was not until I got into high school that I started conquering this fear of talking on the phone. I had other obsessions, such as walking through the city campground on a nightly basis all summer so I could observe the campers. I also continued to struggle when plans changed or my planned routine did not pan out as hoped. In 1996, my mom attempted to take me to my first NFB convention in Anaheim, California. She would attend meetings for parents while I attended kids camp. She thought it would be a great experience for me in terms of learning more about blindness and meeting positive blind role models. I had absolutely no interest. On the first day she tried to drop me off at kids camp, I was so scared that I was crying and screaming out of fear of the unknown. I was to go off with all these people, knowing none of them, and make a day of it, taking the train from Los Angeles down to San Diego to visit an aquarium among other activities. I was still in the mindset that I was visually impaired, not blind, and I had no interest in the convention. Since I had just turned ten, it was out of character for a child of my age to be throwing a temper tantrum over having to leave my mother's side for a day. I can only think what the people around me must have been thinking. NFB philosophy says blind children can have all the same opportunities as sighted children and nothing should hold them back. This incident made me look like a poorly socialized blind child and made my mother feel like she had failed. Other kids my age would just say, Bye, Mom. See you later. I did not. I could not handle being with unfamiliar people in unfamiliar places. I was too afraid of something bad happening when nobody I was comfortable with was around and the fear of trying to interact with new people. In about fourth or fifth grade, a year or two after the NFB convention incident, my mom approached me and said she had read an article and figured out I had something called Asperger's, now commonly referred to as Autism Spectrum Disorder. I had never heard of this before, and I remember hating the sound of the word as being my first reaction. My mom explained that this was why I had strange obsessions, liked routines, did not like change of plans, and did not interact well with my peers. Now she would have more understanding when I would lose it over a change in plan, and she could understand my obsessions. It was immediately decided by my parents and teacher of the blind that we would not mention this to teachers, write it up in my IEP, or bring any attention to it in the school setting. It was thought that teachers would be stressed enough to have a blind student in their class. If we added autism to the mix, I would create unnecessary stress on teachers. Besides, it did not really have any effect on my academic abilities, only my social skills. Through my K-12 through school years, I had basically zero association with my peers outside the school environment. My peers in school pretty much left me alone. Luckily, I never really got teased, picked on, or bullied. No girl in high school ever tried to ask me out on a date. I never attended a school dance, and nobody invited me to a gathering of any kind. 
I did not want to participate in any of this anyway. I probably would have declined if asked. Weirdness was attributed with blindness. My participation in Key Club and the speech team was all I could handle. Not wanting to leave the comforts of home made me decide to stay in Thief River Falls after graduating high school and take classes at the local community college. In the spring of my first year of college, I obtained a job as a people greeter at Walmart. This was the perfect job for me while I was in school. It gave me work experience, a social outlet interacting with my co-workers, and customer service skills. I had no problem putting that happy face on and saying, Welcome to Walmart, in a friendly tone. Little, small-talk conversation was never a problem for me, but developing any long-lasting friendship or getting to know people my own age on a deeper level just did not exist. I worked with a lot of fellow college students at Walmart and even had classes with some of them, so it really helped me learn to be better socialized. Towards the end of finishing my associate's degree, I recall a conversation with my parents where autism got brought up. They indicated it was still an issue I had to deal with. I said I did not understand why, since I functioned fine on a day-to-day -day level. My dad said, name a person in their early twenties, like you, who has absolutely zero close friends. It was sort of a revelation that it made me think my autism was affecting me more than I realized. I lived at home with my parents, so I received all my social and emotional support through them. I knew that blindness was my visible disability where I would need accommodations for the rest of my life. It dawned on me that I needed to become more independent than I was. These things were partially due to being autistic, but also due to a lack of confidence as a blind person. I needed to build my own friend circle. I decided the answer to building my independent skills and building myself a social life was training at Blind Incorporated. While in training, I was able to attend day at the Capitol and Washington Seminar. I could take my strong interest in politics and in blindness, an issue that impacted me personally, and I could combine them to advocate for other blind people. I jumped in and have never looked back. Thanks to the support of the National Federation of the Blind, I found the confidence to do things I could have only dreamed of, such as live independently and obtain my bachelor's degree in social science, which I was not sure I ever wanted to do after my associates. I also added a master's in advocacy and political leadership. I also thank the Federation for giving me a social life and a place to feel welcome when there are so few places I have ever fit in. Still, very few people are aware I am on the autism spectrum except for my immediate family and a few close friends. It is not something I advertise. To this day, it is my thought that I got a pass on my social skills in school, as teachers and peers attributed my social oddities to my blindness while not realizing there might have been something more to it. If I were just autistic and not blind, the autism may have needed to be addressed in school, or maybe my parents would have figured out I was on the autism spectrum sooner. I believe this may still be the case in some social situations today. How much social awkwardness can be attributed to blindness and how much is related to being autistic is a question I do not have an answer for. Another question to explore is, how many autistic people are there in which another disability such as blindness is masking their autism like mine did for many years? In the NFB we are starting to talk more about multiple disabilities and people labeling themselves as both blind and autistic. I am glad to see the conversation starting since this secret is something I have had difficulty sharing and have covered up for a long time. Instead of jumping to conclusions and connecting every single little social struggle to a poorly socialized blind person, like we sometimes have a tendency to do, maybe we should ask ourselves what other hidden disabilities or struggles one may be having besides blindness. These questions do not have black and white answers, and as we in the National Federation of the Blind further explore the conversation around blindness, 
autism, and multiple disabilities, I would love to be a part of the conversation. Allyship and Inclusivity by Rashika Kartik A photo appears on the page, the caption, Rashika Kartik. From the editor, this article is taken from Future Reflections, a magazine for the parents of blind children. It appeared in the 2022 convention issue, Volume 41. Here is the way Debbie Stein introduced it. For the past several years, Rashika Kartik has built strong connections with the blind community. She leads art activities as a volunteer at the Colorado Center for the Blind, and she conducts art workshops with blind and low-vision students from the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind, CSDB, and in school districts across the state. In 2019, she received a two-year grant to expand her work from Arts in Society, a Colorado foundation that supports arts programs in underserved communities. Rashika has the distinction of being the youngest person ever to receive an Arts in Society grant. At the time her grant was awarded, she was only 14 years old. Rashika and her father attended their first face-to-face -face National Federation of the Blind convention in New Orleans. In this article, Rashika reflects on her experiences. Percussive cane taps accompany cheerful greetings and chatter. Braille dots adorn the pages of pamphlets, and enthusiastic, talking signs guide people to their destinations. People of all ages, identities, and perspectives share stories, coming together from around the world. In July, I attended the National Federation of the Blind's National Convention, the largest gathering of blind people globally. Convention is an event that involves training, support, and information sharing for the blind community. It facilitates human connection and inspires people to lead full, independent lives. As a sighted person attending this convention, I grappled with how to support a community I care about as an ally. As an Indian-American woman, I understand the value of affinity groups and identity-specific events. Being surrounded by people who share your identity allows you to be fully yourself and feel understood in a distinct way. I did not want to prevent others from having this experience by attending as a sighted person. I am grateful for the way the National Federation of the Blind has welcomed me with open arms. Volunteering with the blind and visually impaired community over the past four years has taught me that everyone must be involved in issues around accessibility and diversity. Just as men can amplify a feminist message of gender equality, sighted people can become part of the blindness movement and work to dismantle ableist narratives. The key is to speak out by listening, to maintain an open mind and hand the microphone to those around you. As allies, we inevitably will make mistakes, but by learning from our mistakes and engaging in open dialogue with those around us, we can work together to build inclusive communities. The National Convention emphasizes that blindness, while challenging, unlocks a unique way to live life. Rejecting the notion of conforming to societal expectations allows people to find creative ways of doing what they love, from cooking and playing an instrument to studying and traveling. Unfortunately, a lack of communication between sighted people and the blind community often leads to uninformed design. Disability advocate and design strategist Liz Jackson describes uninformed design products as a disability dongle, a well-intended, elegant, yet useless solution to a problem we never knew we had. Technology such as voiceover and braille displays has been instrumental in promoting inclusion. However, designing expensive technology without spending time with the blind community creates products that blind people may not necessarily want or need. A common example of misguided solutions is the movement to develop complex sensors to help blind people detect objects and obstacles. Designers often pursue these technologies in order to eliminate the need for the white cane.
We don't need $300 gadgets to reinvent the wheel, staff members at the Colorado Center for the Blind say. The cane has served as a valuable, affordable, and useful navigation tool for years. Another instance of impractical technology is the development of artificial intelligence initiatives that transform 2D visual images into sound, with various tones representing objects in the picture. In-depth training is required before a person can interpret these sounds. The system is not intuitive for everyday use. Disability dongles illustrate a broader societal issue. Sometimes would-be allies don't make enough effort to listen to the perspectives of blind people before they act. Sometimes, out of their fear of doing the wrong thing, they do not act at all. Habin Gurma, the first deaf-blind person to graduate from Harvard Law School, affirms, Disability drives innovation. When you think about new ways of accessing information, new ways for people to connect and engage with each other, you're going to find yourself designing the next best thing. By practicing authentic allyship, people create accessible solutions that help everyone. SMS texting was invented by Finnish inventor Matty McConan and his team to help deaf people communicate. It now makes life more convenient for all of us. One of the first working typewriters, technology we use daily, was created by an Italian inventor, Turi. He wanted an easier way for his blind lover to send him letters. Small changes, too, can create universally beneficial accessibility solutions. When designing the website where I post my blog, mentors of mine encouraged the use of high-contrast colors and hierarchical text for users with low vision and dyslexia. These changes made the site more user-friendly and aesthetically pleasing for all visitors. Using alternative text to describe images optimizes Google's search engine, allowing people to find web pages much more quickly using keywords. When I volunteered with the Educational Support Group at the NFB, we created tactile models to explain complex mathematical concepts. This work helped me realize that I, a sighted person, am not a visual learner. Now, I often create 3D representations when I struggle in math, which helps me understand calculus concepts much more quickly. Unfortunately, the standard educational model still only accounts for visual learning, isolating many people from success. My friends with low vision often express frustration with being forced to use their unreliable vision instead of being given accessible learning alternatives. In order to inspire creativity and build confidence, kids need the message that there is no single right way to do things. This message can start in the classroom. Providing Braille materials and embracing unique learning styles are imperative in ensuring that every person receives the education they deserve. The NFB National Convention taught me that everyone is impacted by issues around accessibility and everyone can take part in creating solutions. Rather than forcing solutions with an existing paradigm, disability inclusion is an opportunity to revolutionize current ideas. By abandoning conventional norms and exploring new ways of doing things, we unlock a new way of life. Resources available on the NFB Braille Monitor show notes page. Touring and Facilities by Ramona Walhoth. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Ramona Walhoth. From the editor, Ramona has been in the Federation since before I came, and she has always been a strong and dedicated leader. In recent years, she has taken fewer leadership roles, but it is obvious she is living well, having fun, and experiencing new things to share. Here is her most recent contribution. Many blind people travel and enjoy it immensely. Still, I hear comments about boring museums where everything is behind ropes or under glass. And indeed, I have experienced this and the frustration that goes with it. 
On the other hand, many who operate museums and tours are making an honest effort to make museums enjoyable and informative to the blind and other disabled people. Just for fun, I will share some of my most enjoyable experiences, many of which are in other countries. After retirement, I have been fortunate to be able to take several trips. I was delighted to find a friend who was eager to cruise with me through the Panama Canal. There were at least six stops along the way. We chose three tours, all of which turned out to be high points of our trip. Going through the canal was a very interesting experience. Ship personnel described the canal and the equipment as the ship went up through the locks, across the man-made lake, and down the locks on the other side. There was definitely a lot to see visually, but not only were there good descriptions, but also the comments of fellow travelers provided information and interest. For example, there were many exclamations about the movements of the workers on the narrow islands between the ship lanes in the canal. I could hear the voices of some of them. It took all day to complete the passage across the isthmus, and my friend and I went to various parts of the ship for perspective from high above and closer to the work outside. My friend had difficulty keeping track of the ship layout, so I was the guide for getting around the ship. At the time of this trip in 2016, they were just opening new lanes across the canal to accommodate larger ships. We were fortunate to do this on a sunny day, and most of the passengers were outside enjoying the refreshments, the views, the other people, the information, and, of course, taking pictures. In Cartagena, Colombia, we decided to take a jewelry-making class. I was a little concerned that there would be someone standing in front of the group saying, Do this, do that. I was very glad to have underestimated this class. Each student was given silver wire and taught to make a necklace, a ring, and earrings. Each traveler was assigned a Colombian jewelry school student as an instructor. I spoke only a few words of Spanish, and my instructor must have known about that much English, but it did not matter. She handed me the materials and guided my hands when I needed it. I completed the projects and was very pleased with them. We chose unfinished Colombian emeralds for each piece of jewelry, and I had Christmas presents for my daughter and daughter-in-law. After visiting the salesroom to admire much more elaborate jewelry, we toured the jewelry school. As we passed the machine used to form silver wire, we were offered the opportunity to try it out. I took an uneven piece of silver and passed it through the machine several times. Each time it came through, narrower and smoother. In order to give others a turn, I did not finish the process, but it was fascinating to learn how very fine silver thread can be made from a lump of silver. I would never have known this without this experience. And, of course, I have my picture in my iPhone to show my friends and family at home. In Costa Rica, we joined a bus tour to a McCall Reserve. Upon arrival, we had the opportunity to walk from one flock of birds to another. We were asked not to talk when we were near the birds because they can learn human speech, and it was desirable to keep them wild. When people came near, each flock would become very loud, showing a lot of interest in the people. Flocks of birds were kept separate to prevent cross-mating. This reserve was to care for animals that were not able to remain in the wild for various reasons. Some native birds would later be released. We passed very near a jaguar and other animals native to the tropics. I found this visit much more meaningful than most zoos in this country because there were many animals and we were much closer to them. In southwest Mexico, we joined a tour to a large private farm. They explained to us that there was no medical facility nearer than 50 miles, so they grew many herbs to treat a variety of conditions. I was offered the opportunity to touch and smell many different herbs and plants. At one point, a group of us were led to the kitchen where a grandma was frying tortillas. As we watched, someone placed a piece of paper in my hand and soon a hot tortilla. 
After another minute or two, someone plopped a gob of refried beans on top of the tortilla. Then I was expected to roll it up and eat it. It was delicious. The kitchen was primitive, people were friendly, and I had a delightful experience. We had the opportunity to examine rugs, blankets, baskets, etc., made by those living and working at the farm. We even had a sample, as they said, to taste some liquor from the Big Blue Cactus. When my oldest granddaughter completed her junior year in high school, I decided we should take a family cruise before they all began to scatter. We debated whether to go to Australia or the Mediterranean, but the kids chose the Mediterranean. My daughter and I flew to Madrid while other family members made other choices for their first stops. We all joined back together in Barcelona. The music in Spain is everywhere, and we enjoyed it. There were blind people working in stands around the city and traveling on the subways. UNSE is a very well-funded agency for the blind. They are proud of their museum for the blind, and we visited. They have three sections, one on history, one on braille production, and one showing models of famous buildings from around the world. The people were very friendly, and it is very much a hands-on place, a most enjoyable day. Our cruise took us to Gibraltar at the southern tip of Spain. People looking at Africa across the narrow strait commented on the weather and the terrain. The most memorable part of that stop was the monkeys or small apes who lived there. A colony of three hundred are wild animals, but are looked after just the same. We were admonished not to reach out to them, but all of my grandchildren had a monkey come to them. Their parents were rather concerned, but the kids loved it. The monkeys passed very near all of us. They know they are protected. We visited an olive farm near Marseille and many spots in Italy. One of my granddaughters found an iPhone app with a great deal of information about the Colosseum in Rome, including who sat in which locations and where the gladiators were allowed to go and more. We could check it out as long as our feet could last. As we walked from the Colosseum through the tunnel to the Spanish steps, we found people playing accordions, just like in Madrid and Barcelona. I will not bore you like someone showing two hundred slides of a trip, but I could tell of many other events, to say nothing of food and people and shopping. There are blind-friendly places in the United States as well. When my children were small, we lived in Des Moines, Iowa. We visited the living history farms there, where they showed how agriculture in Iowa was in 1840, 1880, and 1920. They showed equipment and buildings from each of those times, and it was all hands-on. I hope it is still as friendly. There are also mixed experiences. I have visited several different parts of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Some are much more meaningful than others. When I went, I wished I could have stayed for a week and shown some curators how to improve their displays, which would not have been difficult. I am looking forward to more and better opportunities of this kind. Kenneth Jernigan Convention Scholarship by Tracy Sofranco A photo appears on the page, the caption, Tracy Sofranco. From the editor. Tracy is a member of our National Board of Directors and is the president of the National Federation of the Blind of Virginia. He is also the chairman of the Kenneth Jernigan Fund, and it is in this capacity that he writes, Have you always wanted to attend an NFB annual convention, but have not done so because of the lack of funds? The Kenneth Jernigan Convention Scholarship Fund invites you to make an application for a scholarship grant. Perhaps this July, you too can be in the Hilton Americas, Houston, enjoying the many pleasures and learning opportunities at the largest and most important yearly convention of blind people in the world. The three biggest ticket items you need to cover when attending an NFB national convention are the round-trip transportation, the hotel room for a week, and the food, which tends to be higher priced than at home. We attempt to award additional funds to families, 
But whether a family or an individual is granted a scholarship, this fund can only help. It won't pay all the costs. In recent years, the grants have been $600 for individuals. We recommend that you find an NFB member as your personal convention mentor, someone who has been to many national conventions and is able to share money-saving tips with you and tips on navigating the extensive agenda in the big hotel. Your mentor will help you get the most out of the amazing experience that is convention week. Who is eligible? Active NFB members, blind or sighted, who have not yet attended an in-person NFB national convention because of lack of funding are eligible to apply. If you have attended a convention virtually but have never attended an in-person convention, you are still eligible. How do I apply for funding assistance? This year, we will be accepting applications online. Since applications must be completed in a single session online, we strongly recommend you prepare your responses in a document and then cut and paste your responses into the application form. The application form does not support complex formatting, so we recommend avoiding formatting such as bullet points and fonts slash styles. Effective January 1, 2023, the application form can be found on the NFB website Braille Monitor Show Notes page. The application will ask for the following information. Contact information. Include your full name and both your primary phone where you can be contacted by your state president and your mobile phone you might use at convention if available. Please include your mailing address and, if you have one, your email address. If you don't have an email address, please consider if there is a friend or chapter member who might be able to assist with email correspondence. State affiliate slash chapter information. Include your state affiliate, your state president, chapter, and chapter president if you attend a chapter. Mentor information. Include your personal convention mentor and provide that person's phone number. Funding request. Include your specific request and explain how much money you need from this fund to make this trip possible for you. We suggest you consult with other members to make a rough budget for yourself. Essay questions to explain why this is a good investment for the NFB. How do you currently participate in the Federation? Why do you want to attend a national convention? What would you receive? What can you share or give? Any special circumstances you hope the committee will take into consideration? If you cannot apply online, you can still apply by writing a letter to your state affiliate president answering the above questions. This letter should be emailed to your state affiliate president. Once you have decided you will apply, please contact your state president in person or by phone to request his or her help in obtaining funding. Be sure to tell the state affiliate president when you expect your application will be submitted and mention the deadline. Once your application has been submitted, it will be provided to your state president via email. It is still your responsibility to contact your affiliate president. He or she must email a president's recommendation directly to the Kenneth Jernigan Convention Scholarship Fund Committee at kjscholarships at nfb.org. Your president must email the recommendation no later than the deadline of April 15, 2023. If you have applied using other than the online form, the state affiliate president must email both the recommendation and the application letter. Notification of Award If you are chosen to receive this scholarship, you will receive a letter with convention details that should answer most of your questions. The committee makes every effort to notify winners by May 15, but you must do several things before that to be prepared to attend if you are chosen. Make your own hotel reservation. If something prevents you from attending, you can cancel the reservation. Yes, you may arrange for roommates of your own to reduce the cost. Register online for the entire convention, including the banquet, by May 31.
Find someone in your chapter or affiliate who has been to many conventions and can answer your questions as a friend and mentor. If you do not hear from the committee by May 15, then you did not win a scholarship this year. Receiving the award. At the convention, you will be given a debit card or a credit card loaded with the amount of your award. The times and locations to pick up your card will be listed in the letter we send you. The committee is not able to provide funds before the convention, so work with your chapter and state affiliate to assist you by obtaining an agreement to advance funds if you win a scholarship and to pay your treasury back after you receive your debit or credit card. More information. For additional information, please contact the chairman of the Kenneth Jernigan Fund Committee, Tracy Sofranco, at kjscholarships at nfb.org or 410-659-9314, extension 2020. Above all, please use this opportunity to attend your first convention on the national level and join several thousand active federationists in the most important meeting of the blind in the world. We hope to see you in Houston. The Journey of Braille, From the Hands of the Creator to Earth Orbit, by Mark Maurer. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Mark Maurer. From the editor, late Monday afternoon, July 6, 2009, the 98th anniversary of the birth of Jacobus Tenbrook, President Maurer made brief but thoughtful remarks about two seemingly disparate topics, Braille and space travel. This is what he said. People who are invited to watch a launch of a space shuttle at the Kennedy Space Center occupy an observation site three miles from the launch pad. Two of the Louis Braille Bicentennial Silver Dollars were scheduled for inclusion in the payload of the shuttle to be launched on May 11, 2009. Launch time might be as early as 2.01 and 56 seconds p.m. The day before the launch, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, conducted a day-long seminar on aspects of exploration of space, origins of the cosmos, and scientific discoveries made through the use of the Hubble telescope. By focusing the Hubble telescope on the darkest parts of the visible sky, the scientists have discovered thousands of galaxies that have previously been unknown. The characteristics of the light observed by this instrument have permitted cosmologists to look back in time more than 12 billion years to a period near the beginning of time itself. Furthermore, these observations lead to the conclusion not only that the universe is expanding, but that the rate of its expansion is accelerating. If the rate of expansion is itself accelerating, there must be a reason. At least part of the explanation lies in another astonishing conclusion, that 96% of the matter and the energy of the universe is not observable directly, but only calculable, based upon the influence that it has on the observable segments of the universe. This 96% of non-observable mass and energy is known as dark matter and energy. These are a few of the scientific conclusions discussed during the course of the symposium. It is said that in about 1890, a physicist made the claim that the important theories of the physical universe had all been discovered and that the only work remaining to be done was to make more accurate measurements. Within a few years, however, Marie Curie had discovered radioactivity and Albert Einstein had written his special theory of relativity. Now, with the observations from the Hubble telescope, we posit the existence of dark energy and dark matter, and we hear from the scientists who study such things that less than 5% of the universe we know is observable. This description suggests that, despite the astonishing amount we have learned about our universe, an enormous quantity is still to be discovered. I reflect about this when I think about what has been said about blindness, 
about blind people, and about our capacity for intellectual effort. Too many people believe that everything worth knowing has already been learned about us, but we know better. We know that our horizons have been artificially restricted, and we postulate that they will be expanding at an accelerating rate to encompass fields of comprehension beyond everybody's wildest imaginings. An astronaut came to tell us about the rigors of her training to become a traveler in space. The plan for her initial ascent is that she will travel to the International Space Station sometime in the spring of 2010. This statement is all-inspiring, and it stimulates contemplation of romantic adventure. However, Dorothy Metcalf Lindenberger told us that much of her training was hard, grueling work. She was trained to survive in the most hostile environments, and she was put to the most demanding tests. Achievement is frequently composed of the most romantic dreams and very hard work. The space shuttle itself has three engines. It is launched with the aid of two solid rocket boosters. Officials of the Kennedy Space Center told us that at the time of launch, 400,000 gallons of water are pumped onto the launch pad to diminish the noise and shock generated by the launch. Anybody within 800 feet of the launch pad would be killed by the heat. Anyone within 4,000 feet of the launch pad would likely be killed by sound, they said. When the time for launch came, we were three miles away. When the shuttle began its climb, we were told that fuel was being consumed at 11,000 pounds per second. By the time we could no longer hear the sound of the shuttle, it had reached a height of several miles on its way to orbit at 240 miles above the Earth. The Louis Braille commemorative coin, representing knowledge, representing learning, representing the desire to join in the excitement of life, was lifted from the Earth on a journey to a place higher than almost anybody has ever been, at a speed faster than almost anybody has ever traveled. Braille has shown the way, and some of us will follow. Reading to Succeed, How the Power of Braille Literacy Opened New Avenues for Interpreting My World, by John Calconley. A photo appears on the page, the caption, John Calconley. From the editor, John lives in Texas and intended to have this article for the January issue to celebrate World Braille Day. It took him a bit longer to write the article, but his is one of many valuable stories we should read about the power of Braille and the way it empowers blind people with another tool in our efforts to reap the benefits of literacy. Here is John's article. Literacy is an essential element of success since it is essential in so much of our communication. The greatest gift one can hope for is being able to interpret his or her surroundings. My life took a swift turn for the better after being exposed to the Braille Code. I am grateful a system of reading and writing created for the blind has been created and that I understand how to use it. We are often told it is not easy to learn since using the fingers to distinguish between the dots is required. However, this code makes perfect sense once thoroughly studied and practiced. I will never forget the feeling of joy that rushed in me when I began to learn Braille. Before being exposed, my self-confidence was low. It seemed insurmountable for me to achieve the dreams I held of being the best I could be. When my fingers were running through the dots on the paper, I wondered if I would ever become proficient. Suddenly, I gained confidence in myself and came to the realization that I could be productive and contribute to society in my own way. Like most things worth doing, learning Braille meant committing to work and practice. What kept me going was deeply reflecting on the benefits it would bring if I could master it. As a result of my determination and effort, I mastered this code and have become the proficient reader I am today. The most challenging part for me in learning Braille was when I was introduced to the Nemeth code used in mathematics. 
Since math is extremely visual, it was very difficult to determine where the answers would be placed when solving problems. The layout of math problems can sometimes be different in Braille, as in the case of long division or even the presentation of a fraction. But it all makes sense once you realize that there are minor differences in the format of math problems. I remember the endless hours I spent trying to complete homework assignments on the Perkins Brailler and becoming frustrated when I could not come up with a solution. Even the signs of operation did not make sense to me at the time, since there are a variety. There were moments when I felt like giving up and my confidence was shattered. Luckily, that lasted only a short time because I was motivated to keep trying by my grandmother. God bless her soul, she encouraged me to stay motivated and keep learning. Even in those moments where I felt lost, her presence kept me up. Those countless hours of frustration eventually turned into moments of joy, and I began to appreciate math for what it is as a result of my dear grandmother's support. I will forever treasure the times when we would work problems together. Her explanations through examples of objects enhanced my ability to comprehend the rules of operation. Learning the contractions and short forms used in Braille made the learning experience more enjoyable. In the same way, I became more efficient. I strongly believe that contractions are very useful when scanning through articles to identify words. These contractions also save room when writing. I feel that time is a key component of efficiency, and the less time I spend figuring out words, the more time I can devote to really understanding what I am reading that the author is trying to communicate. By coming to understand the contractions quickly, I can also decode the spelling of most words by picturing the word in my head, just as print readers do. When I went through the public school system, I was fortunate to work with a vision teacher who instilled in me the importance of literacy. Over the years, she introduced me to different ways in which Braille could represent things I needed to know in addition to words, numbers, and symbols. I learned about graphs, charts, maps, and other tactile graphics. As a result of being exposed to them, I gained a thorough understanding of how information can be presented. My teacher also kept me up to date as the Braille code changed. Like everything else, Braille has to evolve over time to represent new symbols in ways that can be translated by a computer and interpreted by we who read Braille in a way that is unambiguous. So I have learned the unified English Braille code and can read it as well as the United States Braille code I learned as a child. My world changed for the better when I was introduced to refreshable Braille. Through the use of note-takers and Braille displays, I feel more engaged with my environment while also increasing my efficiency. Each day I am amazed by and grateful for the ways technology evolves in such a short time, turning what seemed impossible into moments that now represent endless opportunities. With today's digital age, a person can instantly send and receive email right under their fingertips. For me personally, refreshable Braille allowed me to further appreciate works of literature in ways I could not simply through audio. Using Braille, I can vary my reading speed and allow myself time to see why one word was used instead of another and to take the time to really understand both the meaning and the emotion of the writer. To this day, I use refreshable Braille in my post-secondary education, and it is making a huge difference in my learning. I am not sure what I would do without it. While the speech from screen readers is useful, just relying on them slows me down drastically because I have to listen to the words being spoken and figure out what they mean. Using Braille and screen readers together assists immensely in identifying spelling errors when writing papers. I am of the opinion that the value of Braille goes beyond education and employment. It truly opens the door of independence and productivity. In the same way, Braille is the key to knowledge.
Since I truly value Braille and what it stands for, I have decided to undertake the journey of working towards a certification in Braille transcribing. I am fully aware that there is insufficient Braille instruction in schools, and children are not able to receive their materials in a timely manner due to lack of resources. This is where I believe I can make a significant contribution. Upon finishing the certification, my goal is to produce educational materials for children so they are not left behind. Acquiring this skill is a major stepping stone in developing one's professional blueprint. I also believe that promoting Braille literacy is essential in everyday life. Whether or not you become fast, Braille will serve you well for reading a label on a package, writing a reminder note, giving you the next thought in a speech, or just making sure you get everything at the grocery store. These may seem like small things, but they make the difference as to how well and how easily one gets through life with confidence and contentment. You can make a difference. Blind children, students, and adults are making powerful strides in education and leadership every day across the United States. For more than 80 years, the National Federation of the Blind has worked to transform the dreams of hundreds of thousands of blind people into reality. With support from individuals like you, we continue to provide powerful programs and critical resources for decades to come. We sincerely hope you will plan to be a part of our enduring movement by including the National Federation of the Blind in your charitable giving and in your estate planning. It is easier than you think. With your help, the NFB will continue to give blind children the gift of literacy through Braille. Promote independent travel by providing free, long white canes to blind people in need. Develop dynamic educational projects and programs to show blind youth that science and math careers are within their reach. Deliver hundreds of accessible newspapers and magazines to provide blind people the essential information necessary to be actively involved in their communities. Offer aids and appliances that help seniors losing vision maintain their independence. Plan to leave a legacy. The National Federation of the Blind Legacy Society, our Dream Maker Circle, honors and recognizes the generosity and vision of members and special friends of the National Federation of the Blind who have chosen to leave a legacy through a will or other planned giving option. You can join the Dream Maker Circle in a myriad of ways. Fixed sum of assets. You can specify that a fixed sum of your assets or property goes to the National Federation of the Blind in your will, trust, pension, IRA, life insurance policy, brokerage account, or other accounts. Percentage of assets. You can specify that a percentage of your assets or property goes to the National Federation of the Blind in your will, trust, pension, IRA, life insurance policy, brokerage account, or other accounts. Payable on death, POD account. You can name the National Federation of the Blind as the beneficiary on a payable on death, POD account through your bank. You can turn any checking or savings account info into a POD account. This is one of the simplest ways to leave a legacy. The account is totally in your control during your lifetime, and you can change the beneficiary or percentage at any time with ease. Will or Trust If you do decide to create or revise your will, consider the National Federation of the Blind as a partial beneficiary. Visit our planned giving webpage, https colon slash slash www.nfb.org slash get dash involved slash ways dash give slash planned dash giving or call 410-659-9314 extension 2422 for more information. Together with love, hope, determination, and your support, we will continue to transform dreams into reality. Ways to Contribute Now Throughout 2021, the NFB sent nearly 1,000 Braille Santa and Winter Celebration letters to blind children, encouraging excitement for Braille literacy. 
distributed over 5,000 canes to blind people across the United States, empowering them to travel safely and independently throughout their communities. Delivered audio newspaper and magazine services to 126,823 subscribers, providing free access to over 500 local, national, and international publications. Gave over 600 braille writing slates and styluses free of charge to blind users. Mentored 232 blind youth during our Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning Academy in-home editions. Just imagine what we'll do next year and, with your help, what can be accomplished for years to come. Below are just a few of the many diverse, tax-deductible ways you can lend your support to the National Federation of the Blind. Vehicle Donation Program The NFB accepts donated vehicles, including cars, trucks, boats, motorcycles, or recreational vehicles. Just call 855-659-9314, toll-free, and a representative can make arrangements to pick up your donation. We can also answer any questions you have. General Donation General donations help support the ongoing programs of the NFB and the work to help blind people live the lives they want. You can call 410-659-9314 and elect option 4 to donate by phone. Donate online with a credit card or through the mail with check or money order. Visit our Ways to Give webpage, https colon slash slash www.nfb.org slash get dash involved slash ways dash give for more information. Pre-authorized contribution. Through the pre-authorized contribution PAC program, supporters sustain the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind by making recurring monthly donations by direct withdrawal of funds from a checking account or a charge to a credit card. To enroll, call 410-659-9314, extension 2213, or fill out our PAC donation form, https colon slash slash www.nfb.org slash PAC, online. If you have questions about giving, please send an email to outreach at nfb.org or call 